Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3, please. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available that you could use. The Purax in front of you. You'll take one of those black Bibles out and open it up to page 1128. You'll arrive at Romans chapter 3. And the text before us this morning It was a cold Sunday evening, the 8th of October, 1871. Small fire in a barn at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Patrick O'Leary. That fire soon swept out of control, burning for two days. Process that fire consumed three and a third square miles of the city of Chicago, leaving a hundred thousand people homeless in its wake. Fire is a true and real danger. Accordingly, most people have some form of fire insurance against just such a danger. But when it comes to the gospel, the concept of fire insurance is a danger. That concept. All of us at one time or another have explained the gospel to people in terms of fire insurance, right? A way for someone to avoid the fires of hell. But this we should not do. We should not do this. First of all, it's not an accurate representation of the message of the gospel. Beyond that, it can lead to the development of an attitude within those that are speaking in that way towards seeing the person we're talking to as somewhat of a customer. That if they don't buy the fire insurance, well, then let them burn. Right. The third danger of a fire insurance view of the gospel is that it misleads people in terms of what it means to have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If it is simply fire insurance that you have purchased, then that can lead to the notion that you can live your life however you like. It doesn't really matter because you have purchased your fire insurance, right? You raised your hand, you said the prayer, you came forward, you made some profession of faith at some point in your life. You purchased your fire insurance policy and everything is okay. It doesn't matter day to day. But beloved, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The motivation and message of the gospel is vastly deeper and richer than a concept of a fire insurance policy. And we are examining that gospel here together this morning. Let me read for you, beginning in verse 21, as we are talking about the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel. 
Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Introducing this section of Scripture last week, we said that in these verses, 21 through 26, lie the heart of the gospel. All the gospel truth is packed into these few short verses. And that as we begin to unpack these verses, it's it's kind of like one of those little sponges you get, you know, that's real small and you put it in a glass of water and it it swells up big. Well, what's going to happen here as we begin to unpack this is this compact statement of the gospel is going to swell up big and fill your minds with the truth of who God is. We said that there are six aspects of true righteousness contained in these short verses and that they comprise the heart of the gospel. And we want to look at them so that we can understand together what God has done and how it is that the gospel saves sinners. We noted how last time that this section is a major turning point in the text, in the book of Romans, Denoted for us in verse 21 where he says, but now, that is that something has changed. It used to be this way, but now something has happened. We noted in verse 21, Paul's, or verse 20 rather, Paul's summary statement where he gathers up all of the condemnation that has gone on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to this point. And he pulls it all together in the sweeping statement that by the works of law, no one will be justified in God's sight. That is, that no one can be acquitted before God based on their efforts. Why? Because it's all corrupt. It's all corrupt, and that's what 1, 2, and 3 points out. So because righteousness can't come from the inside out, it doesn't come from the bottom up, it has to come from the top down, it has to come from the outside in. That is, it has to come from God to us. It has been manifested to us apart from law-keeping. Verse 21. So we said there are six aspects of true righteousness. True righteousness comes, last week, verse 21, from God. We also noted last week that true righteousness comes, the beginning part of verse 22, through faith. So it is from God through faith. This morning we're going to look at that third aspect in the second half of verse 22 and verse 23. And that is that true righteousness comes from God through faith for all. For all. We are going to concentrate on what it means for all this morning, okay? I've given you a handout. It is in your bulletin. You may want to pull that out. It will enable you to follow along with us a little bit. 
as we look at this. True righteousness comes from God through faith for all. That is, there is no distinction, no distinction. And that's what it says right in in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there is no distinction. True righteousness, that is God's righteousness, it comes to us and it is available to anyone and everyone. Verse 22, who believes, who believes, do you see that to all those who believe? Now, grammatically, we've got a present active participle, which so what? Well, here's the so what. It means believing those who are believing. It is a concept of an ongoing faith, an ongoing belief, a reality that is that is a part of our experience. It is not pointing back to some moment in time when you believe, but it is the notion of an ongoing belief. In Jesus Christ, all those who believe that is people who have a continuing reliance rather than a momentary acceptance of Jesus Christ and what he has done. It is available to all without distinction who are believing. Think with me for a minute on this. Notice how the early church recognized this truth and characterized themselves. They referred to themselves as believers. Isn't that right? They were the believers. Notice they didn't call themselves the baptized. The baptized. Because that would refer to a single event at a point in time. Instead, their reference to themselves is that they were believers. That points to an ongoing reality of faith in Messiah Jesus Christ. Acts 2.44 All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Acts 4.32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to himself was his own, but all things were common property to them. That is, the church that gathered was the church of believers. There is an ongoing belief. The righteousness of God, verse 22, comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who are believing. For there is no distinction. There is no distinction. This explains, by the way, Paul's statement here, there is no distinction. It explains why the true righteousness is available to everyone who is believing. This is the reason why it can go out throughout all the earth. This is the reason why there is no difference between Jew or Gentile, male or female, Slave or free, young or old, rich or poor. It is because it is by believing that we have access to the righteousness that comes from God to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is for all, Paul is saying. And the reason it is for all, continuing in the text, is because all need it. Salvation is for all because all people need it. Isn't that what verse 23 is all about? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a familiar verse, right? Romans 3.23. This is one of the early verses that you memorize as a Christian and you bring to bear in gospel presentation. 
When you're speaking to somebody who who does not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, then often you refer to this verse as a, as a way to try to help them to see and understand their need for a Savior. Isn't that true? Romans 3.23, we call it part of the Romans road. But I don't want to pass over this verse early this, or quickly this morning. I want to spend some time with it. Because I think we often in our familiarity pass over this quickly and say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory, on to the next statement. I want to slow down and look at this verse in a little more detail. I want to begin to unpack the truth that lies within this verse. Just below the surface. Let's put it in the water and let it expand. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is Paul saying to us? What he is saying when he speaks of all is he is scooping up all of humanity. He is saying that all of humanity have sinned. That is that they are ruined in Adam. That's the next point on your outline. All of humanity is ruined in Adam because of sin. They have sinned. Paul speaking of here is original sin. When he says all have sinned, he's talking about what theologians call original sin. What is original sin? When God created Adam and Eve, He placed them in a garden. And He gave them the responsibility of tending that garden. And He gave them access to fellowship with Him in which they were in perfect communion with Him. The Bible says they walked together in the cool of the day. There was unhindered access and fellowship between those first people, that first man and woman, and their Creator God. They joyfully and willingly lived in submission to Him, desiring to please Him and glorify Him, to do that which He wanted them to do. Moses summarizes that in Genesis 1, verse 31, and he says that God saw that it was very good. The creation was in a state where it was very good, unhindered. But something went wrong, didn't it? Something went tragically wrong. It wasn't very long before temptation arose. And that first man and woman surrendered to that temptation and they chose to ignore and rebel against their Creator. They violated the one absolute prohibition that He had given them. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Any other tree in the garden you may eat freely from, but this tree you may not eat from. But they ate from the tree. And by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve breached their relationship with God, their Creator. And they plunged themselves and their descendants into a life of sin and misery. They broke the fellowship that existed there. And in the process of that fall, they it was determined the essential nature of everyone who was born as an offspring of that first union. That's what theologians call original sin. 
That in the transgression of Adam and Eve, humanity as a race became broken. We all descend from that first man. Isn't that true? Even Eve herself taken from a rib from his side. We are the race of man descended from Adam. You'll slip over to the right to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. You'll see where Paul makes that summary statement. Now, when we get to Romans 5 and verse 12, we'll spend more time unpacking the implications of that in a fuller way. But I'm just refer you there to think on this. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Turn back to Romans 3 again, verse 23, for all have sinned. That is, all have been caught up in the sin of Adam. They have fallen in Adam. It is original sin and beloved, it infests every single human soul. How do I know that? Because the wages of sin is death and every single one of you has an appointment with the grim reaper. Isn't that true? Death will come to all. So there is original sin referred to here and all have sinned, but there is also volitional sin that is captured in this statement, all have sinned. What do I mean by volitional sin? What I mean is that people sin by choice. People are not only constituted sinners by nature, but they sin by choice. That is, each and every day, every single person sins against God. Intellectually, we sin. Behaviorally, we sin. Verbally, we sin. Simple illustration for you. Jesus said that you shall love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, Jesus said. Matthew 27, verses 37 to 40. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Has that been true of you every moment of your existence? How about your neighbor as yourself? Do you do that perfectly? Of course not. Sin infests us. And it is part of our character, part of our nature is imprinted upon our soul and it is our volitional choice. Now, all of us can no doubt think of somebody more wicked than we are, right? We're good at that. That's one of the defensive mechanisms whereby we try to evade the truth contained here. Yeah, I'm bad, but you should see. You know, I'm not as bad as... And off we go. I don't think there's a person in this room that couldn't come up with two names quickly of somebody that's badder than they are, right? More wicked than you. Fair enough. Fair enough. But that doesn't excuse, nor does that eliminate the reality that even one sin makes you a sinner. One transgression, one time you failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength or your neighbor as yourself. And you are constituted a sinner. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. For all have sinned. But it doesn't end there. Look again at verse 23. It goes beyond that. 
there is an abiding consequence to our sin. And that is that we are, again, present passive verb here. We are falling short of the glory of God. Falling short of the glory of God. Hustereo in the, in the Greek, and what it means is that we are lacking or we have a deficiency with regard to the glory of God. We have an ongoing deficiency with regard to the glory of God. Because we have sinned, we now are deficit when it comes to the glory of God. You can say it this way, we have a glory deficit. Okay? All have sinned and have a glory deficit, is what Paul is saying. What does it mean to have a glory deficit? Well, let's back up one behind that and say, what is glory? What is glory? What is the glory of God of which we are having this lacking, this deficiency? What is it? The principal Hebrew word translated glory, kavod, it means heaviness or weightiness. Is the idea of heaviness or weightiness. It's used in Genesis. You can just jot these down. Check them on your own. Genesis 31 and verse 1 to refer to, jo- to a Jacob's material wealth. It's called his glory. Jacob's material wealth called his glory. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7. The military prowess of the nation of Assyria is called their glory. Genesis 45, verse 13. Joseph's Position as number two in the kingdom of Egypt is called his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. God's holiness is called his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is his glory. It is his heaviness. It is his weightiness. Now these concepts of of Material wealth, military power, position, holiness, that is all of this weightiness or or heaviness come together in the idea of magnificence. The glory is the magnificence of an individual. It is their fame. It is their honor. And God is very protective of His glory of His magnificence, of His fame, of His honor. He will not share it on an equal basis with anyone. He says through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah 48.11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. God is very jealous of His glory, of His magnificence. Now we move from that Hebrew concept into the New Testament, Greek. The Greek word chosen to translate this concept is the word doxa. Doxa, D-O-X-A, doxa. And it means essentially honor or reputation. Honor or reputation. And when it refers to God, it speaks of His majesty. You can see it here in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. When it says they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, right? For an image in the form of corruptible man. It's, it's speaking here of His majesty in creation. Doxa. 
It's used in the same text where we are right here in in verse 23 when it talks about his glory and it's there speaking about his perfections with regard to righteousness. Well, context here in Romans three, this section is about the righteousness from God. And so here, when it says we are falling short of the glory, it's talking about a righteousness. It is a it is a falling short of righteousness. Bible talks of Jesus as being the radiance of divine glory, right? Hebrews one, verse three. He is the radiance of divine glory. It is through him or by him that God is made known. The glory of God is made known to men. John's gospel, John verse chapter one, verse 14, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls his cross work, his glorification. John chapter 12, verse 23. When he speaks of his own death on the cross, he calls it his glorification. And the reason it is his glorification, because it is the culmination of all that he came to do. All that Jesus came to do, all that the Father had sent him to do, culminates in the cross. Luke 19.10, I came to seek and to save the lost. The end of John's Gospel, John 17, verse 4. Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying back to God and He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given Me to do. The glorification of Jesus Christ is the accomplishment of the work that God sent Him to do. Thus, at His crucifixion, we see the magnificence, we see the fame, we see the honor, we see the reputation of God through Jesus Christ, through His humble obedience. Even obedience to the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2 and verse 8. The glory of God in the face of Christ as He humbled Himself in obedience, willing service to God even to the point of death on a cross. God's glory is His magnificence. How do we fall short of it? How are we falling short of it? Why does sin cause us, verse 23, Romans 3, to be falling short of the glory of God? God had an original tent for humanity. God created Adam and Eve and He placed them in a garden with a purpose. Isn't that right? He put them into that garden that they might reflect His glory as all creation reflects His glory. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The heavens are put there to declare the magnificence of God. Man was created to declare the magnificence of God. Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man and woman were created by God. King and queen of creation were placed there to rule over it and display the magnificence of God. His glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. 
what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God, right? And enjoy Him forever. We were put here to glorify God. But something went tragically wrong. In Adam, the race fell. It was ruined, bent, twisted, deformed. And it lives now, the race of men we live, instead of in submission to God, reflecting His glory, instead we live in open rebellion against Him. We choose our glory rather than His. We're more concerned that our magnificence, our honor, our fame is what display, is displayed rather than God's. Instead of living according to the purpose for which we were created as a race of people to reflect the glory of God, instead we choose to follow after Lucifer and to imitate his rebellion. This is the essence of sin. Self-glorification rather than God-glorification. Lucifer said, Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. He wasn't interested in God's glory. And neither is fallen man. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. It was all about them. All about them. Not God's glory. Theirs. The race is ruined in Adam. Polluted, bent, twisted, deformed. But the good news... The good news. You ready? The good news is here too. It is restored in Christ. It is restored in Christ. Is there any hope for ruined humanity? Is there any hope? Is your gospel message something along these lines, by the way? Dear Mr. Sinner, your life is ruined and purposeless. You are destined to live out your days in continual rebellion against your Creator and suffering the consequences of your sin. But rejoice, because you have purchased fire insurance and you are not destined to burn in the eternal fires of hell. Have a nice day. Is that the gospel message? No. It is not the gospel message. The gospel message is so much deeper, magnificent, glorious than that. What is the message? The message is that we were created in the image of God for His glory and we have been ruined in sin. It has defaced us. It has faded the glory. It has, it has marred the glory of God in us. And it cannot be recovered by self-effort. That glory cannot be recovered by your own self-effort. It must come to you as a gift from above. It comes to you as a gift from God. One of the most significant verses, I think, in the New Testament is a statement that relates directly to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I'll just read it to you. Maybe you even know it. Therefore, 
If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That which has been lost through sin, that is the glory of God that we were designed to reflect to the world, is recovered through Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is the glory of the Gospel. There is a threefold sense in which this is recovered by those who are believing in Jesus Christ. Our glory deficit, if you will, is legally reversed at the moment God justifies or acquits us. At that moment, the, the glory deficit that is legally ours because of the ruination of the race and our own sin is legally reversed. We are united with Jesus Christ by faith. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your union this morning to Jesus Christ by faith, your continuing belief in Christ as your Redeemer, your substitute, constitutes your glory before God. Our glory deficit is also reversed permanently at our death. Permanently at our death. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Paul is saying that the return of Jesus Christ, or when we die and go to be with Him, that permanently the glory deficit is eliminated. Legally at the moment of your acquittal, your justification, permanently at the moment of your death, and progressively in between those two momentous, momentous events. We call it sanctification, right? We call it being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Who was the man who glorified God? It was the man Christ Jesus. His whole life was for the glory of God. All that He did glorified God. All that He said glorified God. All of His attitudes glorified God. He lived in perfect submission to the Father. And by that glorified God, He succeeded. Or Adam failed. And in between that legal transaction that occurs at the moment of your acquittal or justification all the way to your death, there is a progressive process in which you and I, who are by faith believing in Jesus Christ, are being transformed from one glory to another, the Apostle Paul says. We are being made like Jesus Christ. Go to your right, Romans chapter 8. Don't take my word for it. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans 8.29 For whom He foreknew, that is God the Father, He also predestined to become, don't miss this, conformed to the image of His Son. That He, that is the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestined by God to become like Jesus Christ. Changed into His image. The glory that was lost in Adam, recovered 
in Jesus Christ. All of what we were supposed to be lost in Adam, bent and twisted and deformed, living for our own glory instead of God's, now in Jesus Christ, recovered. Living for God's glory and not my own. We noted earlier that Jesus is humble, obedient, cross work was the dazzling display of the glory of God in the face of a man. Therefore, in the most practical ways, we glorify God when we joyfully submit to His ways as best and order our lives accordingly. See, this issue of glory lost and glory recovered is not just something for a few theologians to sit around and and sip some strong coffee and talk about. This is intensely practical. Intensely practical. This is what you're made for. This is the recovery of your purpose and passion of life. As a new creation in Jesus Christ, by faith, believing in Him, Paul says, you are a new creation a new creature right the old things have passed away what are the old things that are passed away that is living for your own glory behold new things have come what are the new things that have come is living for the glory of god you're not on the old road you're on a new road we can and we should be driven by a passion for the glory of God. What does that look like? We've got a little time left here. Let's bring it right down to the shoe leather level, okay? Practical. What does it look like? Well, let me suggest something for you. Let's talk about vocation. How's that? That's practical. Vocation. What you do for a living. Okay? What it is you do for a living. Where do you work and what do you do? How does that reflect not no longer the ruin in Adam, but the restoration in Christ? Is that practical? I think so. Let's talk about work. Work is a gift from God. Work is a gift from God. And it has been given to us so that we might glorify Him. Genesis 1.28 And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue it. Rule over it. Illustrated by placing them in that garden that they were to tend and keep for God. Work created by God for His glory. That is, that we would reflect back to Him. Things like order. Things like uh, inventiveness. Things like um, diligence. Things like management. 
But something happened in the garden, didn't it? Man fell into ruination. No longer would work yield easily to man the glory of God. It now became hard, became bent, it became twisted. It was something you got to do. Monday morning comes every week. You got to get up. You got to go to work. And all of us, or most of us, would rather stay home. I'm lucky. I do stay home on Monday mornings. <laughs> you should have my job. People hate Monday morning. They write songs about Monday mornings. Life is bent. Life is twisted. We've lost it. But it can be recovered in Christ. Progressively recovered in Jesus Christ. Paul picks up this concept. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Why do you go to work in the morning? Why do you go to work? Is it for the glory of it's over here? Is it for the glory of God? I say on the right side. Or is it for the glory of man? Is it self-glorification? Do you go to work so you can make money? So you can accumulate things? So you can establish financial security and insulate yourself and isolate yourself and cut yourself off from every problem of the world so that you can live no longer dependent upon God, your own illusion, of course. Right? Build your bigger barn. Fill it with more stuff. I work for my own glory. Or do I work for the glory of God? I go to work for the glory of God. Because in my work, I demonstrate His character in me for all the world to see. And the money that I make the money that comes to me is not my motivation. It is merely the fruit of my efforts. And even in that, I give God glory. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Why do you work? It is for the glory of God. And that which comes to you by the blessing of God, because of your hard work, a gift from His hand, we then turn around and give back to those who have need. All to the glory of God. It's the vision, the reality of Christ. Plays itself out in the process of disciple making. Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 96, verse 3. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do you share the gospel? 
What is it about? Are you selling fire insurance policies? Are you counting noses? Glorifying yourself, God. I share the gospel three times this week. You must love me more this week. Is it for your glory? Or is it for the glory of God? Let the nations, let the peoples rejoice. Why do we preach? We preach for the glory of God. That the nations might come to know Him and praise Him. How about the issue of holiness? How does holiness intersect this? Well, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20? Try that one on for size. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That comes right at the end of a section of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul is talking about all kinds of despicable and deplorable behaviors. He says you've been purchased by Jesus Christ. You are now to live for His glory. That is, there is no place in your body anymore for this kind of behaviors. These things were for self-glorification, pleasure. You're to live now for God's glory. You shall be holy because I am holy, right? That is the motivation. That is the motivation for putting off the old man. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just finish it up by looking at that. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. If you're using a Pew Bible, page 1172. We're to put off these old behaviors, not because it makes life work better. It's for the glory of God. We're to abstain for sexual immorality, not because you might get AIDS. Or some other sexually transmitted disease. That's not the basis. That's not the reason. It is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore... And affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus Paul's saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer to live as the Gentiles live in the darkness of their hearts, their minds clogged and fogged with misunderstanding. Greediness, they gobble down sin. Living for their own glory. But you, if you've learned Christ, are to live for God's glory. That in reference to your former manner of life, Verse 22, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, right? That you no longer be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, you, you begin to think God's thoughts after Him, and that will begin to, to change the way you behave, such as you begin to think and live for the glory of God. Verse 24, you put on the new man or the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Love of the gospel is not fire insurance. It's not fire insurance. It's a message that when believed brings about the sovereign interjection of the life of God into the soul of fallen man regardless of their ethnicity or station in life, right? It is for all. It is for all. Without distinction. It's a message that both saves man from the wrath to come and rearranges his passions and pursuits and purpose in life. He no longer lives for himself. He lives for the glory of God. Now that's a message worth preaching. That's a message worth preaching. When you talk to someone about faith in Christ, paint it to them in a big, glorious picture that it really is. We're not offering something that you add on to your old way of life and continue on your merry way. We're saying that you embrace the risen Jesus Christ by saving faith, and you will be entirely transformed. Nothing will be the same. Your direction in life, your purpose in life, your passions in life will all be turned upside down. No longer living for yourself, but living for the glory of God. That's the kind of vision that allow a person to go to their own death rather than Recant the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, please lift up our eyes from the horizon and let us look up. Let us see what it is you are doing and have done in Jesus Christ. Reconciling mankind and creation back to yourself. Overturning the effect of sin and despair. Instead, making a new creation. Lord God, give us eyes of faith to see it in the here and now and hearts to believe its truth. Lord, the Scripture tells us that it is a, a, a present tense reality, a legal reality for those who have embraced Christ by faith. And it is the future glorification for those who go to be with Him. And in between, it is being worked out in the day-to-day -day decisions of life. Oh, Father, help us to gain a fresh glimpse of that glory. Strengthen us to strive towards it. Make Yourself known in us and through us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, whose glory was displayed on that cross. Amen.